Romans chapter 12. I will begin reading in verse 1, even though we'll primarily be focusing on verse 3 today. We'll go all the way from 1 to 8, just so we can get a healthy context of, of where we are. So, when you found your way there, I'll invite you to stand out of reverence and respect for the word of the Lord, if you are able to stand, and we will read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, what in the world are we doing in Romans 12? Let me sort of catch everybody up for a moment. Uh, We've been a little all over the place, and we're going to continue to be a little all over the place. Um, We had a guest speaker last week. Um, Historically, I tried to take the month of October to uh, focus, refocus on our purpose and our mission, sort of why we exist what we're doing, and where we are headed. Our mission statement, of course, is to see hearts transformed, to treasure Jesus, and to teach the truth all for the glory of God. That mission statement was adopted just two years ago when we reconstituted together as a church of 35 members. I have loved the month of October every year since I've been here. I love reflecting on what the Lord has done since last year and what he's leading us into in the year to follow. Last October, hopefully some of y'all remember, that I spent three weeks in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Go back and listen to those. It'll be helpful context. Um, Instead instead of just going straight through the mission statement as I've done previously, um, I thought that would be a better way to provide a biblical framework for what we seek to do as a church and who we are. Um, And now a year later, maybe it's just the expositor in me. I don't know how to do anything else but go to the next verse, right? But that's, that's what we're doing. It's just going to the next verse, picking up where we left off a year ago. Uh, but I won't really be focusing as strictly on the three T's of our mission statement. Um, I was led back to Romans 12 to think through our patterns of fellowship and our behavior in the body of Christ. This is a powerful chapter full of strong exhortations for the church, and we will be spending the next two weeks here. And there's another reason that I'm in Romans 12 today. Uh, On October 2nd, at our family meeting, Pastor Jay announced that I will be taking a six-week sabbatical from October 24th 
to December the 3rd. Some of you may be hearing about that for the first time. I want you to know about it here in this setting and be aware of what's coming this fall. The elders are graciously offering me this time of reprieve for me to decompress, to spend time with my family, to rekindle a love for Jesus and for his church. Nothing is wrong. I'm not leaving the ministry, and I am certainly not leaving Main Street. I need a break. And so you all have been gracious to offer me a break. Uh, I'm overwhelmed by the gift that I'm being given, and it is a sign from you as a congregation that you want to keep me here a long, long time and to keep me healthy. And I want to be here a long, long time and to stay healthy. Uh, I'm thankful to the Lord for my wife who helped me see this need for my pastors who care for me, who I am more than what I do. And for this church family who is kind and forgiving and who treats me not only like your pastor, but also as your brother. So with that said, only two weeks left before I'm gone. What do we do? You know, and that means if you want to talk to me about stuff too, in the next two weeks is the time to do it, right? You want to get coffee, lunch, hit me up before the schedule fills up. Otherwise, you'll probably be waiting until December. Mariana and I will still be around, okay? We, we're not leaving town. Uh, we, you know, it's actually going to be hard for us to stay away because we love y'all. Um, Jack still thinks I'm going to give up three weeks in and come back. Um, we'll, we'll see. But um, don't hesitate to call, text, share some love, you know. But if you need to talk about something serious the next two weeks, um, seriously, do, do let me know. Otherwise, we have two other elders and three deacons who are happy to talk to you and meet your needs. Um, but with that said, what do I preach to you two weeks before I disappear? Um, I believe the Lord has us in Romans 12 to give us some direction. This is my prayer for us through the month of November, while I am gone, that you would be humble and that you would serve one another. Now, I know that's pretty far-fetched, right? That you would be humble and that you'd serve one another. That's my prayer for you during my sabbatical. And that's what Romans 12 teaches us. I pray it wouldn't just characterize us through the month of November, though. I pray that it would characterize us through the entire church year. By God's grace, this morning and next week, we will learn how to humble ourselves for proper service that we might worship together as living sacrifices in the body of Christ. And uh, a little bit uh, uncommon to how I normally preach, we don't have any formal points um, that will be guiding our time. I'm just going to walk right through verse 3 um, and just squeeze the life out of it. Uh, so that's, that's what we're doing today. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Uh, now, Romans, you know, is an epic book. 
Dave preached the beginning of Romans last week for us. He called it the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And I think he's right. I've resolved myself personally not to preach through the book of Romans until I've been a pastor for at least 10 years. Some of y'all probably heard me say that. I haven't earned the right yet, right, to go through the book of Romans. 16 chapters of wisdom and theology and practical living. A letter written to the church in Rome by Paul before his arrival at the end of the book of Acts. He wanted to go there. He longed to see the Roman church, to build them up, to be built up by them. But since he couldn't go in person yet, he wrote this letter of pure awesomeness. And just food for thought, uh, as this church was struggling with persecution and trial, and he wanted to build them up and edify them, how, how would you go about encouraging someone who's going through a hard time? Well, Paul basically writes a systematic theology. Here's God, right? That's the book of Romans. And here is how you should take courage, by knowing who God is. He wanted to give them a big view of God so that they could deal with persecution and trials. And the picture we get of God in Romans is truly exceptional. Chapter 1 tells us the power of the gospel to save everyone who believes. Chapters 2 through 3 go over God's righteousness revealed to humanity, which reveals simultaneously our unrighteousness that is worthy of wrath and condemnation. Chapters 3 through 5 cover redemption that has been won for us in Jesus' death and resurrection, that has achieved justification for sinners, peace with God, triumph over sin and death. Chapters 6 through 7 answer tough questions about how we're to make sense of being made righteous in Christ, but still living in a body of sin. We don't receive grace so that sin may abound. We strive to kill sin and to walk in newness of life, but... Grace is still greater than all of our sin and all of our flesh. And chapter 8 is just the treasure chest of Romans, isn't it? He elaborates further on Christ's love for sinners, that God has given us the Holy Spirit who seals us from all condemnation, makes us heirs with Christ, promises a future glory that won't even be worth comparing to the present suffering of this age. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In chapters 9 through 11, deal with the doctrine of election, God's plans for Israel, God's plan of salvation for the nations, the mystery of Gentiles being grafted in as the chosen people of God. And at the end of this long and thorough treatment on the sovereign plans of the Lord, Paul ties it all together in praise and doxology at the end of chapter 11, saying, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Somebody can amen on that if you want. And you know, it seems like a good place to end the letter, doesn't it? That's, I mean, right? Why is there a chapter 12? Chapter 12 begins. You know what the second word of chapter 12 is? Therefore. Because of all that that we just covered in 11 chapters, therefore, how should we then live? 
And that's what the rest of Romans is about. How should we then live? If God is God, we know this to be true about salvation and his sovereign plans. How should we live our lives? And the verse we're getting into today is a smaller, therefore, of its own because verse 3 comes after verses 1 and 2, believe it or not. And uh, it says, for by, or literally, I say for in the Greek. So to understand verse 3, you have to understand verses 1 and 2. So verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. To sum it up, uh, go back, listen to last year's sermons if you want a lot more on that. But to sum it up, Paul says, if this is what God is like, then you should give yourself to him in every way. You should give yourself to him in every capacity of your life. This is worship that God accepts, to live by his mercy and to give all of yourself for his glory. As you live for the glory of God, you will look less and less like the world, not conform to it, and instead more like your creator. As we live for the glory of God, we're being transformed day by day into the likeness of Christ by the renewal of our minds. This is how we live. But then Paul says in verse 3, 4, putting another domino behind the stack here. So this is what we do with our lives now. That he's, We've been saved, we've been converted, we've been changed, we've been made aware of God's glory. So here's the second domino, knocked over by the first. We have to deal with our personal response to God as a living, response, living sacrifice of worship. That's the first domino. The second domino is our interpersonal response to the revelation of God. Chapter, verses 1 and 2, this is how you worship. Everything after verse 2, this is how we worship. Okay? Makes sense? A lot like Ephesians that, that Stephen covered this morning. Who we are and then... Um, who we are individually, and then who we are corporately. Um, so if we're giving ourselves as living sacrifices of worship, what should our gatherings look like? What does it look like for 51 members in Spindale, North Carolina, to do this together? How do we do verses 1 and 2 as a body? That's, that's where we go. That's where we're headed. Uh, Paul gives one more qualifier for how this thing works. Verse 1 said that it's only possible for us to give ourselves as living sacrifices by the mercies of God. That's how we do it, okay? Verse 3, now he says it's only possible for us to do it together, corporately, by grace. We can only do it individually by the mercies of God, verses 1 and 2. We can only do it corporately by grace, by the grace given to me is what he says. Grace is what enables us to worship together as a family. And that's almost the exact same phrase he uses in 1 Corinthians 3.10, which is probably a verse you know well. Uh, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 is pretty different context from Romans 12, but there Paul is referring to the building up of the church. And he says, for by the grace given to me, this is how I'm building up the church, man. Now in Romans 12, by the grace given to me, this is how I'm building up the church, right? Grace is behind it all. We can build with perishable things, 
like wood, hay, or straw. No grace. Or we can build with lasting, eternal things like stone and uh, the things that he says there. By grace, we build the stuff that has an eternal impact. Grace is behind it all. How did grace come to Paul? We preached through the book of Acts. should be fresh on your minds. Saul went on his way to Damascus, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Acts 9, verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Grace. This was grace. Paul writes these exhortations as a sinner who hated the Lord Jesus, did not believe in his resurrection, and hated the church, persecuted the church, breathed threats against the church. And yet he was given undeserved, unmerited, unlimited grace. Paul could not go on to follow the Lord without the grace that first opened his eyes. And so you and I now, beloved, cannot obey the commands of Romans chapter 12 if we leave the grace we first experienced. This is how commands work in the Bible. God doesn't say do this and not give us what it takes to do it, right? He provides the means for us to obey. And those means are his all-sufficient grace and his new mercies every single morning, right? The Ten Commandments are that way. It begins saying, I am God, look at me, right? Then he says, here's the commandments. He, he tells us who he is and tells us how to obey him by grace. And that's what's also noteworthy about Paul's conversion is his visible change in posture, right? He's soldier, puffed out chest, walking to Damascus, looking for disciples. Now he's blind and on his knees, Right? Grace changed him. Grace humbled him in an instant when he saw the greatest light he'd ever seen in his life. And y'all, it's hard to be prideful when you're blind and on your knees. Right? Saul was used to being top dog. The Pharisee of Pharisees, persecutor of Christians. No one could get in his way. He was in charge. He was the best of the best until he met the best of the best. There was someone greater, right? Paul is about to admonish the Romans to live in humility with one another. And we see in Paul's own conversion how God's grace humbled him and thus qualifies him now to teach on humility to the Christians in Rome. Christians that he's never even met yet. And he's going to teach them about humility. Right? And who in Rome is he addressing? Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, everyone among you, who's the everyone here? You love when preachers do silly stuff like that. Who's the everyone here? Everyone, right? Surely, Paul doesn't mean everyone in Rome, though. Everyone among you. Among who? Same wording used in 1 Peter 5 when Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God. Among who? Among you. Among the body of Christ. Among the people, the members, the people who belong to this corporate thing that God has created. The church is who he's talking to. This is who this letter applies to. And so Paul begins the letter in Romans 1-7 addressing them, and this is the title he gives the church, to all those loved by God and called to be saints. That's who he's writing to. 
the people of God, the gathering of believers that God loves who get together in Rome every Lord's Day. Paul is writing to the young believer and the old believer. Paul is writing to parents. Paul is writing to children. Which must mean that children had to be there, right? They weren't in the, in the closet next door. Uh, they, they heard it, man. The elderly and the widowed heard it. The rich and the poor. The church is beautiful. Everyone in Rome, which was the hub of the Gentile world, would have been a uniquely diverse and eclectic makeup of Jew and Gentile. How have all these people from different walks of life and in different stages of life come together to listen to the words of these letter, this letter being read? They were united by grace. They weren't united by other stuff. They had unity in the cross. They had unity in the grace once given them, given for all. So who is everyone among us? Raise your hand if you're in everyone among us. Very good. Raise your hand if you need grace. Keep it up. Right? So all of us, corporately interacting together, treat one another with grace. And we need grace in order for this thing to work. But before Paul delves into how we view others in the body, he wants to make sure we have a right view of ourselves, which is what we're talking about today. Not to think of himself, this is a command to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Why does Paul have to say that? Because we do that. Everyone in the church at Rome, every believer still today, has the natural inclination to think of themselves more highly than they ought. We do it without even realizing it. We live in our own world, our own movie, as the main character. And if we are the main character, we must be the best of the best. This is a word that all of us need to hear this morning. Everyone among us need to hear this. If you're already tuning out, come back. Everybody needs to hear this. Right? Young and old, parents and children, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And like a lot of commands in Scripture, he starts off with a negative and then finishes with a positive. Don't do this. Then he says, do do this. Right? So we're going to get the antidote. We're going to get the, the um, alternative for what we don't do in a minute. But first, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And I think the wording is very intentional here. The phrase, think more highly, is just one word, phreneo. And that word literally means to hyperthink, to hyperthink. You might literally translate it as high-minded, to be high-minded. It is to think about something beyond the limits of reality. It's kind of like imagination, right? We can imagine anything we want to. We know the sky is blue. We know that the grass is green. But in our imagination, the sky can be yellow and the grass can be purple. What we do with our imagination is we take general truths about the world and the way things actually are and then we exaggerate them until they're no longer reality. Okay? 
So what are we tempted to be high-minded about? Ourselves. <laughs> Don't be high-minded about yourself. We know what is generally true about us, but then we exaggerate those characteristics until it's no longer true at all. Like our imagination. Another word for this is pride. We all heard about the eclipse yesterday. Anybody get to see it? No. So a couple of you? Cool, cool. So what happened when that shadow, you know, came over the sun? You didn't see the sun anymore. It was hidden. Like the eclipse, a shadow comes over our minds that hides our flaws and our weaknesses, and we don't see ourselves as we truly are. I tried to reflect on a few examples, different ways we might display this high-mindedness in ourselves, and I promise you I'm taking these from personal experience. Perhaps you are high-minded when it comes to knowledge. And Stephen, again, I'm just going to, whoever teaches core doctrine is usually who I keep referencing throughout my sermons. Um, <laughs> so sorry. But, but he talked about knowledge, right? And it's kind of this knowing, and then there's knowing. And so we can be high-minded when it comes to knowledge in the sense that we know a lot about something. And so we consider ourselves somewhat of a subject expert. And because we have this knowledge, we struggle to listen to other perspectives on the topic because we know we, we're right. We've, we've studied it more than anybody else, right? We read at least three articles on Google, you know? So, I mean, we've pretty much reached the peak of research um, at this point. Uh, we interrupt conversations and spend more time talking about what we know rather than hearing the person across the table from us. Paul also knows from personal experience that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Don't be high-minded when it comes to stuff you know, the things you've studied. In fact, if you study the Lord, it should make you all the more humble. That's the point of studying the Lord. Maybe you're high-minded about an ability or uh, a privilege or a talent that you have. You know one thing that makes absolutely no sense in my mind? is Sam's Club. I don't get it, right? But here's how it works. You have to be a member, okay, but here's, here's what you get. You get to buy groceries. If you're a member, you get to buy groceries. We say that out loud and we realize how silly it is. But this is why it works, doesn't it? Because we say things like, I can do this, and other people can't. <laughs> I signed up for the card. It's in my wallet. You can't go to Sam's Club, but I can. And it's literally just buying groceries. Maybe it's a group or a special club that you belong to. Maybe you make more money than others in this church. Maybe you've traveled more than others have. Don't be high-minded about what you've done or what kind of accesses you have in life. It's just silly. It's silly. Third, maybe you're high-minded about your relationship with God. 
this is perhaps the most perverse thing to be prideful over. But I also believe it's one of the most common in church life. There's a good chance that the more we perceive ourselves as godly, the less godly we actually are in real life. There's a good chance, not always true, but listen, there's a good chance, I'm going to say it again, that the more we perceive ourselves as godly, the less godly we actually are in the real world. We're all pursuing godliness, right? But if the measure of godliness is based on the ungodliness of others, then you're not measuring yourself according to God anymore, right? So your godliness has gone backwards. Godliness is piety that seeks the pleasure of God. Many of us turn the pursuit of godliness in the pursuit to be liked or admired for our religiosity. And the truth is, you're just as big a mess as the rest of us. Don't be high-minded when it comes to the a sense of your own godliness. That's the most backwards way I think we can be prideful. Now, some of you might have already tuned me out because you don't think you have a pride problem. First of all, nobody knows they have a pride problem, right? Never met anybody who did. Uh, but this is why the Bible is a mirror, because it shows us who we actually are. It reveals flaws in us that we, aren't, we don't want to see, right? The Lord may be calling out some pride in your heart this morning. Um, but maybe you're kind of over here struggling with this because you have the opposite problem. And you think low-mindedly. In other words, maybe you struggle with self-esteem issues. The cool thing about this verse is that it really does go both ways. Don't be high-minded implies that you are intentionally living within the realm of reality. To think of yourself less is just as much to leave reality as it is to think of yourself too highly. You're still not living within the real world, right? If you have self-esteem issues or thinking too lowly of yourself. This is a word for those who have a bad self-image. Many of our sisters, I know, struggle with these kinds of things. And our children will grow up struggling with these kinds of things. We must tell them who they are in Jesus, which Ephesians tells us very well, who we are in Jesus. You are made in the image of God. You are the most prized of all God's creation. Very good, very good is the human body and the human soul and the life that he's made. Intricately and uniquely and wonderfully made by a creator. You are loved by him as a father. Even though you've sinned and marred the image of God within you, through Christ, he accepts you as his beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. You know how the Bible describes you? We could go back and look at the whiteboard next door if you want to know how. But here's what I wrote down. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. You are God's people. So be careful that you don't go the other direction with this either. It's really just another version of pride. Because you're thinking about the world you live in wrongly. See it through the lens 
of grace. And the point of all this is to show us the way that we truly are so that we can properly treat others well. And there's a lot going on in the rest of this chapter um, about how we live together in a community of grace. But we have to start here because the way we think about ourselves actually does affect our relationships with other people. So if we come into church with a wrong view of self, we actually don't have good relationships. You know, there's a disconnect. Something's not going to work at the corporate level if we don't have this right. But let me tell you, one of the things that I tell people, people ask, how's church going? What do you tell them? I would really, I'd really like to know your, your answer to that. How's church going? Um, here's what I tell people nowadays. I tell them things are going great. I tell them I love my church and the church loves me. I tell them that God has decided to bless us. I tell them that there is a sincere sense of unity and joy and hope and optimism that I've never seen here before. I tell them that faith, hope, and love are building us into a mature people. That's what I tell them. But you know one of my greatest fears for us during this next year? I think a fear that some of you have shared and that's that it all falls apart. 2021 through 22 was a really sweet year of new beginnings. We were small in number, but deeply united. And now we're starting to grow significantly. Almost half of our Sunday gatherings some days are people who are not even members yet. That's pretty quick growth in my mind. Um, I heard another pastor say this recently, and I think he's right. The larger a community grows, the more risk is involved for the church's continuity. The larger a community grows, the more is at risk for the church's continuity. It's good for a community to grow, right? We want growth. It's good for a church to grow. We want to grow. But every sinner that joins the flock increases the risk of our unity getting cracks in the foundation. Okay? And it's not that growing is the problem. Growing is not the problem. Growing can be a wonderful blessing. The problem is that we are adding more people who have the natural inclination to be high-minded just like the rest of us. And five people who are high-minded can do a lot less destruction than a hundred people who are high-minded. Right? So your risk goes up. Your risk goes up the more that we grow. And you know what the Bible says. Pride comes before the fall. Or Proverbs 16 in the ESV says, a haughty spirit comes before the fall. Pride is one of the most dangerous sins to enter the church. And I'm not exaggerating that pride is one of the greatest threats to the unity and fellowship of Main Street Baptist Church, both in this upcoming year and every year that follows. It's one of the greatest threats during my sabbatical. Don't be high-minded. Everything can change in an instant. When pride becomes normal and grace becomes strange. Don't let grace become strange here. There is an alternative. That alternative is to think with sober judgment. Think with sober 
judgment. It's the same word, phreneo, is used like four times, I think, uh, think, but this time it's not hyperphreneo, it's safe phreneo, sober judgment, safe thinking, literally safe-mindedness has the idea of that which is healthy, that which is taken in moderation, regulated by truth and reality. Paul says that this is what we ought to be doing. Healthy thinking. Healthy thinking. And while we're already in Greek class, let me give you one more nugget. The word phreneo for think is where we get our word for the science called phrenology. Anybody know what phrenology is? She smiled like you might. Most of us are normal people, and we don't know what phrenology, I didn't know what phrenology was, but I thought this was cool. And it's really, it's a science that we don't really do much anymore. Um, But phrenology is the study of the shape and size of the cranium as a supposed indication of character and mental abilities. Okay? So when babies are born, they have soft skulls, right? We know this. We've got to be careful of the soft spots. I had babies, right? And I remember when Isla was born, you know, seeing the, the soft spot and sort of waiting, make sure they all filled in right. But the belief is that as the skull forms in a fitted way over the brain, you can tell something about the person's mind or their thought processes, their character, their abilities. And to be fair, this science, again, has been pretty much discredited since the 19th century. The shape of a skull doesn't always equate with what's inside. Thank goodness for some of us that got big heads, right? Uh, but uh, when Isla was born, right, and I remember seeing the soft spots and literally seeing her heartbeat like through the top of her head and thinking, this is crazy. And she was a back sleeper. And so we were so worried she was going to get a, a flat spot in the back of her head because she never rolled over. You know, and of course today they have those like cushion helmet things that sort of form the skull to an appropriate uh, shape for healthy growth. Um, we haven't had to do that, but it, it's it's interesting, right? And I think that there's an image here for us to see if we have eyes to see it. How can we ensure that we aren't developing flat spots? How can we be sure that things are growing? appropriately in our head how do we know our minds are healthy go back to verse 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable perfect We keep our minds healthy by not conforming to the world. We keep our minds healthy by being transformed by the renewal of our minds, which is a work of the Holy Spirit that begins at conversion. And then we test all things to discern what is of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, we seek to live by the truth, And the Holy Spirit illumines our minds and helps us to see things as they really are so that we don't inflate reality with narcissism. Truth is truth. Pilate famously said, what is truth? I submit to you that truth has a name. John 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, 
Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First John, the apostle, continues to write in chapter 5. I think Stephen may be preaching on this this morning. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There may be some here today who don't just need some evening out on your cranium. Maybe you're here today and you've not been given the understanding that comes from Jesus Christ. Your mind has not been renewed and you have not been transformed. There's only one way, one truth, and one life. There's only one light of the world to shine on our darkened minds that we might know truth and be set free by the truth. If you do not know the truth, you are not free. You are a slave to your own way of thinking and your own worldview. And ultimately, that is sin. Sin is your master. But Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect, sinless life. Though he was God incarnate, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I could be given new minds. He bore the penalty of sin for us, which is death and the wrath of God, but then he rose from the dead and he's still alive today, interceding for all who call upon him in repentance and faith. Friend, this will never make sense to you until you repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and live under the light of his glory. His light shines into our night and changes the way we see everything. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the true God. He is eternal life. He will give you understanding. He will transform you. He will renew your mind. And if you're in Christ this morning, the application is simple. Not easy, but simple. Live in the freedom of the truth. Live in the freedom of the truth. No longer submit to the yoke of slavery. Think with sober judgment. See all of life under the light and truth of the glory of Christ. That's what the Bible would have us do. And we do that best in the community of faith known as the church. And this last little phrase is is tricky. What does it say? We think with sober minds, sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That phrase is attached. You know, this is how we think soberly. This is how we think safely. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And I think this is trying to connect this idea of our individual thought processes with the way we view one another. We don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We think with sober judgment, knowing the measure of faith that God assigns. And this is tricky, right? Because I think we're tempted to read this as each according to the measure of sanctification that God has assigned. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says each according to the measure of faith. And faith, the way we use that word and that verb, listen, I'm going a little bit deep, and I'm at the end, okay? Can y'all give me five minutes? This is, this is good stuff. Hang on. I, you're not supposed to get deep at the end, but here we are. We use the word faith to talk about our general religious practice, right? We talk about our faith as in our walk with God. Um, but that's not always the meaning in Scripture, Uh, It sounds like Paul is saying that God assigns some people to get to a certain level of spiritual maturity, then they stay there. Some go higher, some stay lower. Some really love Jesus, some only love him a little bit. God decides who's who. 
He decides who loves Jesus more and who loves him less, right? That's, that can't be what it means, right? Um, we read it in context. Uh, verse 4, coming after verse 3, says, for, for, each with, you know, the measure of faith that God assigns, for is in one body we have many members. So he's trying to connect this to the function of the members in the body of Christ. Okay? So this helps us interpret the meaning, because we're asking the question, what has God assigned? He has assigned function within the body of Christ by members that comes from faith. So a better way to understand the faith that he's talking about in verse 3 is really the word faithfulness. Faithfulness breeds healthy function in the body of Christ. He has assigned a level of faithfulness that indicates your function in the church. And that's what we're getting into next week. I'm just trying to segue you to get, get you there to next week, right? We'll, we'll get into all that. But I believe the measure of if you think more highly of yourself than you ought, you're probably going to think that God has assigned you functions in the body that he has most certainly not assigned you. Because a sober view of self is God's view of yourself. So Paul, in a nutshell, is saying, y'all got all kinds of people prophesying who ain't got no business prophesying because they got a high view of themselves, right? This is connected to how we operate. Because just as important as the function is the heart behind the function. That's why we'll see next week each, each qualifier comes with, you know, generosity, zeal, cheerfulness, not just doing the thing, but the heart behind the thing, the faithfulness of the person. If we have the wrong motives, we will certainly be doing the wrong functions. There's so much more that we'll get to next week. But what are you feeding your brain? You can find out by how you operate in this church. Are you feeding yourself true things? Or are you feeding yourself lies? Right? Truth sets you free. Lies will keep you slave, slaves. Um, What lies have you been telling yourself lately? Are you working diligently to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? Are you numbing your mind with worldly things, or are you sharpening your mind with biblical truth? Where do you see yourself in the larger picture of this body? Are you a body part that God has assigned for the faithful edification of this flock? Or are you a high number on a membership list that ranks personal holiness? How do you think of yourself in this church? I think we can all agree that Paul was an exceptional Christian. Kind of like our hero, right? He was, he was a good one. Don't think anybody would dispute that. But what was Paul's own view of himself? 1 Corinthians 15 for I delivered to you, as of first importance, that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are also alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle. 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Let's pray that his grace toward us also would not be in vain. Father, I pray that we would have a right, sober view of ourselves, that we would recognize pride and uh, live humbly before one another, and we would have the same mind among ourselves, which is available in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, though he was the greatest of all. Help us to find our place in the body, to love one another, to give grace. Teach us more next week. Help us to put these things into practice well. I pray that everything would uh, not fall apart as we live by grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.